episode 342, How the Consolidated Appropriations Act, CAA, and ERISA fiduciary requirements are actually an anchor for self-insured employers to navigate the complexities of healthcare. Today, I speak with Kristen Deacon. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today's conversation is about the new Consolidated Appropriations Act, CAA, the fee disclosure part of it, as well as ERISA and the fiduciary responsibility that self-insured employers are responsible to comply with under the law. Don't worry. The first thing my guest today, Kristen Deacon, does is explain these terms, what they actually mean, and how they can be a tool, actually, in CEOs or CFOs toolboxes to get access to the employer's own claims data, which is a linchpin here that we'll talk about in a sec. But suffice to say here that the ERISA fiduciary responsibility has a few provisions and in general, self-insured employer health plan administrators kind of tend to offload worrying about these provisions to their brokers and consultants. The problem with this is that brokers and consultants do not bear the ERISA fiduciary responsibility. They do not bear the responsibility of complying with the CAA either. The employer does. You'd think that, given this, more self-insured employers would dig in hard to do their own due diligence to check whether or not their plan is compliant. But they don't. I asked Parker Edmund from Levitt Partners why, and he said he thought that it's likely a combination of the old boys network and a fear of the massive lift that switching up plan designs or even looking at this might entail. But here's another facet. There's a contingent of plan advisors and carriers who have a very vested interest in self-insured employers not knowing what's going on with their spend. And they actually even have a magic trick that they have developed to beat back inquiries. In this magic trick, HIPAA is the abracadabra. Let me give you an example role play. Self-insured employer. I need my claims data. Carrier. HIPAA. Self-insured employer. No, not the HIPAA. I stand down. Forget I mentioned it. Here's a pro tip. Actually, read HIPAA. Pull it up on your computer. It's easy to find. Spoiler alert, you know what you'll discover? 90% of it is a love note to the carriers themselves that govern the data they must possess and the structure of that data. 10% of it is about the privacy of that data. And in that 10%, it specifies clearly that a self-insured employer is a covered entity and therefore falls under the umbrella of who can have access to claims data, especially if it is de-identified. Of course, said employer has obligations as to how to treat that data, but yeah, just don't be fooled by the HIPAA when it's wielded like sorcery. The only reason that word has any power is because so many C-suites let it have power. Also now, there's some provisions in the Consolidated Appropriations Act, the CAA, which was passed in 2020, which really ups the ante here. My guest today, Kristen Deacon, explains all of this and more, including what's up with the CAA, which is good because I could barely remember the name of it throughout the course of this interview. Kristen Deacon is a healthcare leader and public sector entrepreneur. She is a former deputy attorney general, a in air quotes, recovering attorney, as she calls herself. Earlier this year, 2021, she left her role running the state health and school health benefits plan for about 800,000 New Jersey public employees. Now she's just transitioned to the private sector where she serves as an executive VP at 4C Health Solutions. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. 
Kristen Deacon. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks, Stacey. Just given your wealth of experience, having just come off of running the New Jersey State Employees Health Plan, you're probably the perfect person to ask about ERISA. What is ERISA? What does it apply to? ERISA stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. So it's overseen by Department of Labor, both the the pension side of the house, also the health benefits side of the house. And it really lays out what your obligations and fiduciary obligations are with respect to both pension and health benefits. I'm often asked, you know, well, you ran a, a government health plan. Why does ERISA matter, right? And one thing I always have to explain is that ERISA might not be technically applicable to government health plans, but that absolutely doesn't mean that government health plans aren't bound by fiduciary obligations to their health plan. Government health plans are subject to fiduciary obligations, which are often derivative of state statute or regulation that draw heavily, heavily from ERISA. I think it's really important to note that those obligations set forth in ERISA are a floor, right? They're an absolute minimum as far as what your obligations are to administering the health plan. They're not aspirational. They're sort of the bare minimum of what you need to do to comply with the law. And before I ask you why this would matter to an employer, this might be a ridiculous thing to even talk about. Like, why are you subject to the law? But before I ask you that question, What's a fiduciary obligation? Again, you're an attorney, so it's probably a Mm -hmm. good question for you, but it does seem to be something that has a a question mark on top of it for a number of people. Like if I'm an employer and I have a fiduciary obligation relative to health benefits, particularly, like what does that imply? It's pretty straightforward. You have to act in the sole and best interests of plan participants with an exclusive purpose of providing benefits. That's what we call the, the sole and exclusive benefit rule. You have to carry out all of your duties as a fiduciary prudently. You have to follow your plan documents. You have to hold your plan assets in trust for the exclusive benefits of the plan. And then my favorite in this space is pay only reasonable plan expenses. This, I think, is where we struggle as self-funded employers, like government, private sector, to really wrap our heads around what does that mean? I think we can probably all agree on what reasonable expenses are not, but I think this is the one that is probably the most difficult to unpack for health plan administrators. Okay, so just understanding the chain of events here, we've got ERISA, which all self-insured employers, the executive that's in charge of that plan, the employer themselves, Mm -hmm. is subject to ERISA. And ERISA requires that administrator to have to take fiduciary responsibility, which basically means those things that you just said. They must operate under sole and exclusive benefit of the plan. They have to carry out their duties prudently. They have to hold the assets in trust and pay only reasonable expenses. We'll circle around to, especially that reasonable expenses portion of this in a sec. But Before we do that, let's get into the why now. I mean, ERISA has been around for I don't know how long. It also arguably has been around for I don't know how long (laughs) that these self-insured employers are not paying reasonable expenses, for example. So, you know, if this has been an ongoing issue, why wouldn't we just expect the status quo to be enforced? And kind of like if everybody's doing it, why should I as an employer be concerned? 
Right. Why now? Okay. So yes, ERISA has been around for a while, but I think as we continue to look at the healthcare spend and trend of our self-insured marketplace, I mean, today, 67% of covered workers are in self-funded plans, and that's up from 61% just last year. You're painfully aware of these numbers, Stacey, I'm sure, as are many of your listeners. Total healthcare spend in 2019 grew 4.6%. We're now at a point of spending 17.7% of our GDP on healthcare costs. And so the why now, it has to be now because this is just unsustainable. And if you're looking at sort of the opportunity costs that we as a society are being asked to withstand, right? We spend less than 1% of our GDP on climate change. We spend 2.5% on infrastructure. We spend under 5% on education. We spend... 17.7% of our GDP on healthcare costs. And that's only going to go up if we don't do something now. That's why now, in my opinion. So if I'm a CFO or a CEO and I'm being held to only pay reasonable costs, and then you see the healthcare costs accelerating higher than the rate of inflation year over year over year at some juncture, maybe soon, (laughs) this is going to come to a head and somebody's going to figure out that these costs may not be reasonable that are being paid. Is that kind of the summary? I think so. And I think we've suffered from this notion that it's like this unstoppable train that's left the station that we can't control. You know, healthcare costs is this abstract thing going up and up and up. My mission is informing self-funded employers and, and public sector employers that sponsor health plans that you absolutely have the keys to stopping that train and controlling that spend. It's not something that's outside of your control. You can do something about it. Something that, for example, plan members are becoming aware of. There was all those lawsuits where employees were suing their employers over 401k benefits, for example, that they had deduced probably rightly, were not in their soul, were not to their soul an exclusive benefit. So what does that look like on the healthcare side? Is that same analog kind of playing out? It's a good question because it is it is quite different from a paradigm as like that 401k model because it's almost more clear cut. I think you really have to unpack and understand what goes into, let's say, the plan administrator's relationship with their third-party administrator or their pharmacy benefit manager or any of the other point solutions or even, you know, brokers, right? Are you using our plan assets for the plan? I.e., let's use an example with your TPA, with your third-party administrator. Are you using plan assets to pay your TPA to administrate claims? Are those claims always your claims, right? So there's something that happens in the industry called cross-plan offsetting. Essentially, that means that your carrier or your TPA is using your money to make somebody other than you whole, right? So if you have a hospital that has a claim reverse and we need to claw back that money, and it's on account of one of my carrier's fully insured claims, they might claw that back by offsetting one of my plan claims called cross-plan offsetting. That to me is a very clear example of using my plan assets in a manner that does not serve the sole and exclusive benefit of my plan members. When I was with the state of New Jersey's health plan, we wrote a contract that's been sort of held as a model in the industry going forward that precluded cross-plan offsetting. 
our TPA had to get this. They had to have separate financial accounts for my self-funded health plan to ensure that our money wasn't going to make other plans, whether self-insured or fully insured, whole to my detriment. And that's just a, a very clear example of a way in which we are able to fulfill that fiduciary obligation. And how widespread do you think that practice is of cross-plan offsetting? I mean, is that just, you know, business as usual? I, I know I'm asking you to speculate yeah. on something, but... No, I don't think it's speculation. I think the fact that that contract that we wrote was so revolutionary and it has been a model held up by other public sector folks and even private sector, it was sort of unheard of, not only for somebody to call it out that this happened, but then to preclude it. So I think, yes, absolutely. It's very much business as usual and a very common practice. If I'm an employer, right, and I'm concerned that this is going on, Obviously, one thing that I could do would be to get that model contract and use it, you know, ask my TPA to sign it, which I don't know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I guess uh, if it is going on, you, you'll probably see the most pushback, right? So it might be a clue in and of itself how much pushback you get. But I guess, right. the, you know, the other way to do it would be to get a hold of your claims data, right, from the TPA carrier and then look at the aggregate total and then notice if that's the aggregate total that you are charged because those two lines should match. Is that a strategy? I think you're touching on something that's like much more fundamental and something that underlies your ability to carry out, you know, duties one, two, three, four, and five. You have to own your data. If you don't own your claims data and if you're not looking at it and actively engaged in oversight and accountability, how are you able to even from the get-go say that you're able to comply with one through five? You know, the owning the data and being vigilant in that oversight of your claims data, not just the claims, but the financial transactions that come underneath that, that's the key to unlocking your ability to do all of the things that you're required to do pursuant to ERISA or whatever fiduciary threshold that you're required to abide by. But isn't that data protected by HIPAA, which is something that the carriers often will tell an employer? Yeah. No, that's great. I laugh only because this is one of those moments when I like to put my attorney hat on. HIPAA is one of these like acronyms that's fl- thrown around without any real understanding. I can't tell you, Stacey, how many times our carrier would say, yeah, but HIPAA. And I'm like, HIPAA has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now. So a claims file can be completely de-identified. And if we're talking about the financial piece of it, I don't need to know who Susie X is attached to that claimant file. Yes, it's HIPAA protected, but I am a covered entity as an employer. Like it's my data, I own it. And if an employer doesn't have a clause in their contract that says they own their data, again, you've sort of failed from the gate. If you don't have your claims data, how do you know that you're paying reasonable fees? And when I say reasonable fees, I'm not just talking about the, you know, your ASO fee that you might be paying to your carrier. How do I know that the value-based payment that the carrier is making on my behalf is reasonable? How do I know that, you know, paying 2000% of CMS for a hip replacement is reasonable when the marketplace at region is, is generally 200% of CMS? Again, if your carrier is telling you, oh, HIPAA, you can't look at your data, you need to pull out that red BS card immediately and number one, hire a new consultant. And number two, maybe think about a new carrier that will be more transparent with you. 
So this is a problem across the industry that you have these large carriers who are very reluctant, and I say that as like the understatement of the year, (laughs) to let employers have the claims data, right? And they're citing gag clauses, they're citing HIPAA, they're citing pick out of a Mm -hmm. litany of various excuses as to why the employer, despite the fact that it's the employer that's writing the check for this whole thing, cannot actually have access to the data that they need in order to fulfill their ERISA requirements, which is the law that that the employer is subject to. Mm -hmm. That's really relevant here. Aside from changing carriers, which is certainly possible. I mean, there's plenty of options that are out there besides the three big carriers who perform 90% of the ASO, the administrative services only plan administration in this country, but there's plenty of other options that are available. Aside from that, what advice do you have? Like if you're a CFO, CEO, and it would be very difficult for you to change a carrier, is there anything, any wisdom that you or advice that you have for these individuals who may be saddled with a carrier to get access to their data? Stacey, you're right that this reluctance is, I don't even want to say it's an understatement. It's because I've seen it and I've seen the unwillingness because of the fear that you're going to erode their value proposition because you're going to know what you're paying for things. From an advice perspective, I'm just going to back up a second because there is a new sort of, I think, tool in a CFO's toolbox or an organization's toolbox that they can use. So in 2020, part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act was a comprehensive fee disclosure requirement that companies take very seriously on the pension 401k side of the house. It exposes them to substantial liability if they don't comply with the fee disclosure rule, which basically says that fees that they're paying have to be reasonable. There is protection to that legal liability. And when I'm, I'm saying legal liability, it's it's a big deal, both financially, it exposes you to employee class actions, reputational harm, and then obviously you risk your status under ERISA. So three ways that you can avoid this legal liability. First, you have to have a belief that you have a disclosure of all relevant information, including service contracts, all third-party fees, a year-end financial reconciliation of those fees, Any failure to disclose that by your carrier would trigger a duty to demand it in writing. And if they fail to disclose it, it requires that you, the fiduciary, notify the Department of Labor. Like there's a website that's there for employers to report carriers that do not disclose these fees. And then finally, you have to have a a detailed assessment of your vendors, including your TPAs, showing that you've evaluated the marketplace and done your due diligence and that your fees are reasonable. I think the the really important part on that last piece, and it does, again, go back to the reasonableness of fees, it doesn't mean, and they're very clear on this, it doesn't just mean like the lowest PEPM, right, per employee per month as a TPA. It means what brings the most value to the plan, not the biggest network, you know, not the biggest discount, what brings value. And so this is, I think, a new tool in the employer toolbox. Again, it's sort of new to market. And I'm really excited and hopeful that self-funded employers are going to take this obligation seriously and demand accountability from their carriers. Because if they don't, they're exposed to real legal liability and pain from a financial perspective. All right. So let me just make sure I understand. ERISA has been around for a while, which requires fiduciary responsibility that CFOs, CEOs, that the self-insured employer takes fiduciary responsibility. Add to that, we've got this new, what'd you call it? It's the Consolidated Appropriations Act? Yeah, budget for 2020, federal. 
Yeah. Okay. So we've got the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2020. And within that, we've got this fee disclosure rule that ups the ante of the legal liability that employers have in order to get a handle on what's going on (laughs) within their health plans. So if it's still a black box, then that could wind up having some legal jeopardy there. And the C-suite, they're very familiar with that fee disclosure rule on the financial side of the house and the very, very serious consequences that come with non-compliance. So like you said, hidden within this Consolidated Appropriations Act in 2020 is this fee disclosure rule on the health plan side of the house, which is new. But the concept and the awareness of the consequences is very real for the C-suite. Again, we can point out the problem all day long. How are we finding solutions? And this is a tool for that C-suite or for that CHRO to hold their carrier if they say, no, no, we can't give this to you. Well, legally you have to. And if you don't, I have to alert Department of Labor on this website and tell them that you failed to disclose these things to me. If I'm a carrier... How high do my eyebrows go up if an employer says that to me? I mean, is it one of those websites that like, great, you got reported, but nobody looks at it because there's like, you know, <laughs> like one person in a tiny cramped office who's who's actually going through and looking at these things? I mean, does it actually carry weight as a threat? Because it's relatively new, that is, that's sort of more to come. But that being said, I have never seen, well, certainly in the public sector and probably in the private, I've never seen a contract that doesn't have language that says, you know, thou shalt comply with all federal and state rules and regulations. I think it has only as much teeth as the self-funded employer is, number one, willing to learn about it and educate themselves. And number two, willing to push back. From the state's perspective, we had 820,000 lives and I wrote a contract that was non-negotiable. You come to the contract, you accept our terms or you don't. But I think if enough self-insured employers, big or small, start pushing back and start demanding this accountability and now have somewhere to point to in a federal statute that says, no, you have to do this. This is no longer a nice to have for me as as a self-funded employer. This is no longer my attempt to be progressive and forward thinking in our health benefit strategy. This is, again, this is not aspirational. This is an absolute floor of what we need to do to be compliant with our fiduciary obligation. Got it. When we're talking about getting the data, what this would include is, and you have said this once or twice, but I just want to make sure that I understand. We're not just talking about the fees that are being paid to the carrier themselves, these administrative service fees. Generally speaking, the largest bucket that we're talking about here, if we're talking about dollars outgoing from a a self-insured employer's health plan, to the carrier. It's not the fees, or one would hope not. It's the claims that are being paid. So we're talking about both the fees, but then also Mm -hmm. the claims that are being paid to entities across the industry. As you said before, you know, how much did the knee replacement cost at the various health systems? How much are the value-based agreements that the carrier may have negotiated? You know, like exactly and specifically, like what were all the checks that were being written on my behalf that I'm ultimately paying for? Exactly. It's sort of crazy, right? I could find I'll stick with my example as a third-party administrator. I could find a TPA with the lowest ASO per employee per month fee, with the biggest and broadest network, with the biggest and baddest discounts, and still lose value because 
number one, the ASO fee is typically like, you know, one to 2% of your costs. The biggest network doesn't mean the best network, right? Like I don't want my employees going for a knee replacement at a surgeon that performs one or two a year. Like biggest network does not equal best. And number three, you know, you have the best discounts. Well, I'm sorry, I'll take a unit cost over a 99% discount any day of the year. I think if we're able to unpack what does value mean, value means sending your members to the best providers in a network. It means perhaps paying a little bit more on an ASO fee in order to provide navigation services and some more concierge like primary care. And again, on that unit cost, another thing that we sort of pioneered in the state of New Jersey was a contract that extracted unit cost guarantees as opposed to discount guarantees. And it was remarkably successful. Yeah, those are just sort of demonstrating ways that we can find value with our vendors that doesn't necessarily, you know, equal lowest ASO cost. There's a whole lot more to unpack there. You bring up something which has been talked about a lot, this whole selling discounts. You know, it's yeah. like you get a 99% discount off of this chair, right? And then you find out right. that the chair costs like $100,000. <laughs> It's like the discount is irrelevant. What matters is what you're actually paying at the end of the day. If I could just give you a really great example. Again, this is all public information, so I can share it. That unit cost guarantee, again, is sort of a new way to do business in an RFP or a, a contract. And one that we really had to push for because everybody, the big consulting firms, everybody was like, yeah, but discounts, that's just how it's done. You have to look at discounts. Who has the best discounts? And that's how a lot of these big carriers win business. Who's got the best discounts? And I said, I don't, that gives me no visibility into what our costs are going to be for the next three years. So let's do this. I want 200 DRG codes, 200 CPT codes in a particular region, because I know that the hospitals and the carriers don't want to disclose their particular prices. So we we backed it out to like a three-digit zip code. And I said, give me your best unit costs and guarantee it going forward year over year. And that's how we evaluated carriers. Stacy, two weeks ago, our carrier in the state of New Jersey for our commercial clients wrote a $24 million check for missed guarantees. When you're only making, presumably, $120 million in, I say only because you know we 800,000 lives, $7 billion in spend, there's a lot more going on there, $120 million in ASO fees, and you had to write a check for $24 million because you missed your unit cost guarantees. What that tells me is the discount guarantee methodology is absurdly flawed. I mean, flawed is like an understatement. It's just a broken way of evaluating and holding people to guarantees in this marketplace. If I'm starting to think about summarizing some of the very sage advice that you're giving here, Kristen, it sounds like first and foremost, get your data. Like so much relies upon actually having something to look at. I mean, if we're all, as David Contorno says, putting our procurement hats on, I mean, like how are you supposed to manage anything if you don't know what you're paying, right? Own your data. And I'm going to go a step further and I'm going to throw that HIPAA acronym back at you, Stacey, and, and encourage your listeners to do the same if they get pushback. So HIPAA is, yes, it's about privacy of data, but that's like a, that's like one very like narrow piece. HIPAA is actually about data much more broadly and really making the universal formats and data fields that have to be made available by carriers in a claim file. 
again, I'd encourage your listener become familiar with HIPAA beyond just the privacy piece. Become familiar with HIPAA because it is a an incredibly powerful tool in your arsenal to say, I know exactly what you have in your claims file because you have to pursuant to HIPAA. So there are standard formats and we know all of these fields exist because HIPAA says that a carrier has to have these things in order to process claims in compliance with the law. So yeah, own your data. It's there. And that's really sort of foundational to building off of all of the other opportunities that you have and obligations that you have pursuant to ERISA or whatever fiduciary obligation that you owe. So we've got get the data. And this is not only so that you can assure that your plan has value. This is also so that you can actually comply with the ERISA regulations that you are in fact subject to, including the new Consolidated Appropriations Act, which I cannot remember for some reason. (laughs) It sounds like another one here is to not be fooled. Is that the right word? By (laughs) discounts? to really be paying attention to what the absolute costs are. That goes back to, again, the ERISA requirement about paying reasonable costs. I would suggest that there's some jeopardy here because the more cost shifting that goes on, if you're a plan administrator, like the more that employees are paying as a percentage of co-insurance, the more that their out-of-pocket goes up, the more that the employees themselves are aware of the total cost of care that's being paid. Right. Like if you're not looking at what is reasonable, it's skin in the game, both from a financial and a health perspective. Like these are people we're talking about. And I think we always have to remember like a lot of what I'm talking about in fiduciary and all these these words. But at the end of the day, it's it's about people. And it's about, to your point, they're bearing more of the cost. And whether that's through increased cost share or foregone wages, if you're not paying reasonable fees, you're using plan assets to enrich others. You're using plan assets to enrich a hospital that performed an unnecessary surgery or enrich carrier that wasn't vigilant in overseeing the claims integrity piece. So even in just like how the claims are being paid themselves, there's certain things that an employer can look into. Yeah, absolutely. The first step is just to learn about it and to become aware of it, because not only is it smart and you're being a good steward of your companies and your employees' money and being vigilant for your shareholders, you're also legally required to. It just brings me back to the most common, I'm going to say excuse at this juncture for why CEOs slash CFOs slash benefits professionals don't dig into this stuff. But they throw their hands up in the air. Like we've talked about all of these, uh, are maybe in air quotes, arcane complications of what's going on with healthcare. So they throw their hands up in the air, maybe understandably, right? And they say, this is so complicated. I just can't with this. I just cannot. I don't understand it. It's a whole big new area for me. I just can't get into this. So I'm just going to write the big old check. And I think what you're articulating very clearly is that ignorance is not bliss. And just because you don't understand it, you can't, you know, get up there in a court of law and say, well, I didn't understand it. So very, very sorry. <laughs> right. And I think sometimes the the laws have to catch up with where we are. And so I'm hopeful about this part of the CCA of 2020. Going back to my lawyer days, There were times when older partners would say like, oh, technology, the internet, email, I don't know how to do e-discovery. I'm putting my head in the sand and I'll let the younger associates deal with this. But eventually all of the state bars association said, you have an ethical obligation to apprise yourself 
of all things technology and email, right? Because you have to as part of your job as an attorney and representing your clients. It's sort of crazy to think a CEO or CFO would ever think to stand up and say, oh, Sarbanes-Oxley, it's just so freaking complicated. I can't, I'm just, you know what? I'm going to let my financial guys handle that or I'm just, I'm just not going to deal with that. It's too much. No, you have to. And not only do you have to legally, and I, and I hope that this is a direction we're going as an industry, but you know, we want you to move in that direction for all those statistics I rattled off in the beginning of our, of our conversation about the unsustainability of our healthcare costs. Again, like the self-insured market is the majority of the market, right? That non-government spending, but they hold the keys to unlocking value and they're holding them. They just have to use them. If it takes a legal rule to require that they do that, then so be it. I am hopeful because I hear a lot more business groups on how talking about the subject matters that we're talking about. I'm seeing a lot of lawsuits out there challenging the status quo. I think the moment's coming and I'll do my damnedest to try and get us to that moment. If you were a vendor and every year you just kind of marched in and said you wanted 6%, 10%, like however many percent more and nobody batted an eyelash, they just gave it to you. It's no accident that all this right. stuff is going on when you start thinking about it in that context, that nobody's monitoring this and all of these entities have obligations to their own shareholders. Kristen, what did I neglect to ask you? Is there anything that you want to add or some summary that you want to offer, advice that you want to give? I would just want to say for those that follow me on LinkedIn or have listened to other podcasts or webinars that I've done, it often seems that I'm sort of focusing on the negative or what's wrong with the current system or the status quo and accountability and oversight. And some of these words, they have sort of like a negative connotation. But what I do want to make sure that I'm also sharing is that I feel that it's important to look back in terms of understanding how we got here, but it doesn't diminish my excitement for the future. I think part of the reason we've gotten here is because too many hardworking and smart people have put their hands up and say, I have to let somebody else deal with this. This is too much for me. It's too hard. It's too complicated. I see people like you, Stacy, like myself, like Marshall Allen, go buy his new book, who are putting in the work and believe that like we can solve these problems. It's just going to take a lot of work. And the C-suite, you know, going back to our, our theme for the day, to pay attention and to run their health plan and manage their health plan spend and trend like they would any other line item on their P&L sheet. Super sage advice, Kristen. There's been a number of shows, if someone wants to go back and, and listen to them, which actually elucidate the roadmap that frankly exists for self-insured employers. Like this is not some, I mean, to a certain extent, it, it is the Wild West, but to a maybe bigger extent, it's not. Like others right. have blazed this trail, including yourself, my friend. But I think you've given a great starting point, Kristen, today, which is get the data. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Wild West because why I feel like this fiduciary, this sort of wonky term is so important is because it's an anchor in the Wild West. I've been there. I felt lost. Like there's way too much going on. There's so much noise. It's the wild, wild west of, of healthcare and health and administration. If you can anchor yourself in these core tenants, which are really just rational things, right? Use plan assets in the soul of exclusive benefit, act prudently, pay reasonable expenses. These aren't complicated concepts. But if you anchor your decisions in these tenants 
and then follow those roadmaps, it's looking less like the Wild West and more like a roadmap to the future. If someone is interested in learning more about your work, Kristen, where would you direct them for additional information? They can email me. My new email address is cdeacon at 4chealthsolutions.com or find me on LinkedIn. Kristen Deacon, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks, Stacey. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.